Chapter 73 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Reign of Eric Magnusson. King Magnus Lagerbotter's son Eric succeeded to the throne at the age of eleven. As he was still too young to rule, a regency was formed consisting of his mother, Queen Ingebjörg, an able and talented lady, and a circle of influential nobles who acted as her assistants. The most powerful of these were Bjarne Erlingsson, Gauta of Tolga, Bjarne Lodinsson, Halkel Ögmundsson, Jón Brynjolfsson, Andres Plit, and the selfish and greedy Audun Hugleksson Hestekorn, a sinister character, ambitious and unsympathetic, who, like an unlucky constellation, trails a deep shadow across the life and reign of the gentle King Eric Magnusson. The queen and her assistants formed from the start a distinct party. They were the representatives of the aristocracy. They were bitterly opposed to the growing power of the clergy, and exercised great influence over the young king, who was docile almost to weakness. Eric's younger and more gifted brother, Hawken, had been made duke before King Magnus died, and when the two brothers became old enough to rule, they seemed to have exercised the royal power jointly, though Hawken acted alone in all affairs pertaining exclusively to his dukedom. King Eric was to be crowned in the summer of 1280, but trouble at once arose between the clergy and the nobility as to the nature of the coronation oath which the king should be requested to take. The haughty and inflexible Archbishop Jon demanded that the liberties of the church should be duly acknowledged, especially the concessions which had been attained during the reign of Magnus Lagobeter. The queen and the nobles were opposed to this, but they finally yielded, and the coronation took place at Bergen on the 2nd of July. Archbishop Jon had hoped to secure a permanent ratification of the privileges claimed by the church, the chief of which were exemption from taxation and freedom from the authority of the secular courts, but he soon learned to his sorrow that the nobles were not disposed to be bound by their promises on this point. Instead of yielding to the archbishop, who would abate nothing of his high claims, the queen and her advisers requested him to submit to them a copy of the resolutions, or statutes, which had been recently adopted at a provincial church council, under the directions of the archbishop and the bishops. In this document, the principles of the canon law regarding the independence of the church and the power of the clergy were set forth in the most uncompromising spirit, and as this had been adopted without consulting the king or his advisers, it gave great offense. A law was promulgated in the king's name for the purpose, as it was claimed of amending the code of Magnus Lagerbeter, on certain points where it was not sufficiently explicit. But the new law made many important provisions, especially with regard to the lading tax involving the taxation of church property, by which the concordat, entered into by King Magnus and Archbishop Jon, was broken. No one could doubt that the aristocracy intended this as an open defiance to the archbishop's hierarchic policy. During the summer of 1281, preparations were made for the king's marriage to Margaret, daughter of Alexander III of Scotland. The Chronicon de Lanarcost states that she was so beautiful that King Eric could not rest before he had sent envoys to Scotland to ask for her hand in marriage. But as he was only in his thirteenth year, and never had seen the princess, he could scarcely be so deeply interested. 
It was no doubt a political marriage arranged by the nobles, who could perhaps figure out that some advantage might be gained through her marriage, as Margaret, in case her only brother should die before her, would fall heir to the throne of Scotland. The wedding was celebrated in the summer of 1281, and Margaret, who was about twenty years old, soon became very popular. She devoted herself to the care of her youthful husband, on whom she exercised a most beneficial influence. But unfortunately for him, she died in 1283 before he reached the age of mature manhood. After the royal wedding, the struggle between the barons and the clergy was renewed with increased bitterness. The archbishop seems to have demanded that the provisions in the new law which he deemed prejudicial to the interests of the church should be repealed. This request was promptly refused. The king's party refused also to accept the code of church laws which the archbishop had prepared, and repealed the privileges granted by Magnus Lugerbutter in a letter of September 13, 1277. The cunning Audun Hugleikson Hestekorn seems to have been the sole in this aggressive anti-church policy. He was related to the royal family, and the king called him his dear relative, Caris Consaguineus. While yet young, he came to court, where he rose rapidly through royal favor. Because of his ability and great legal learning, he became the king's stallera. He seems to have planned the whole campaign against Archbishop Yon, but he left its execution to others, and when the vengeance of the church fell upon those who were considered its special enemies, Audun Hugleikson passed unscathed. The archbishop appealed to Pope Martinus IV, but the king's party also sent envoys to plead with the pope. The pontiff had heard of Norway as a great naval power, and as he was much taken up with European politics at the time, he gave the archbishop no support. This only added fuel to the fire. When Archbishop Arna of Stavanger refused to pay the lading tax, he was promptly outlawed. Archbishop Jon now resorted to the extreme measure of excommunicating the king, his mother, Queen Ingebjörg, and many of the leading members of the regency, but they answered by driving the archbishop and two of his staunchest supporters, Bishop Anders of Oslo and Bishop Thorfinn of Hamar, into exile. Their possessions were confiscated, and Jon Brynjolfsson was placed in charge of the archbishop's residence and the prebends of the cathedral of Trondhjem. The archbishop fled to Sweden, where he died in December 1282. His body was not brought back to Trondhjem for internment until the year following, when the excitement caused by the controversy had subsided. Bishops Anders and Thorfinn, who had repaired to Rome to prevail on Pope Martinus IV to intervene, received but slight satisfaction. After they had waited two years, the Pope finally wrote a letter to King Eric, admonishing him in a friendly and fatherly tone to have due regard for the rights and liberties of the Holy Church, but no bull of excommunication was issued. Thorfinn left Rome before the pontiff had affixed his seal to this letter, and he died shortly afterwards in the monastery of Dost in Flanders. Bishop Anders returned to Norway, sought reconciliation with the king, and was again installed in his diocese. In 1287, Bishop Jorund of Heimar was finally chosen to succeed Jon as Archbishop of Trondheim. It is quite evident that King Eric, who was a mere boy, took no part in this controversy. If he could have ruled, he would, undoubtedly, have continued his father's conciliatory policy. The epithet priest-hater, which has been attached to his name, is therefore wholly undeserved. 
the clergy was unable to offer further resistance, and the storm of controversy quickly subsided, as matters of graver importance began to attract general attention. Ever since Queen Ingeborg had left Denmark in so unceremonious a way to marry Magnus Haakonsson of Norway, strained relations had existed between the two kingdoms. Ingeborg had received no income from the large estates which were her rightful patrimony, and when she became regent for her son, King Eric, she took steps to recover her possessions, which the king of Denmark would not surrender. It soon became evident that war could not long be averted, and the Danish king sought to gain the support of the merchants of Lübeck and Hamburg by granting them privileges in the province of Skåne. In Norway, the German merchants were growing more unpopular. The queen and her assistants endeavored to enforce the laws against them to the letter, and sought instead to strengthen the friendship with England and Scotland. The marriage of King Eric to Margaret of Scotland was probably due to this policy, as new ties of friendship between the two kingdoms were thereby created. Before her death, Queen Margaret had given birth to a daughter, who was also christened Margaret, and when the only son of Alexander III died in 1284, this little princess became the nearest heir to the throne of Scotland. The Scotch magnates pledged themselves to acknowledge her as heir to Scotland, Man, and the Hebrides, and to defend her right to the crown. In the summer of 1284, the regency sent an embassy to King Edward I of England to renew the treaty which had long existed between Norway and England. They were very cordially received, and Edward hoped to bring about a marriage between his son and the Norwegian princess. The king of Denmark, Eric Glipping, was opposed by a number of dissatisfied nobles at home, but he showed no disposition to grant the demands of Queen Ingeborg. With her connivance, but unauthorized by the government, Alv Erlingsson of Thornburg, one of the most powerful of the Norwegian barons, began a series of bold raids on the coast of Denmark. From his castle, Isagram, at the mouth of the Gloman River, he sallied forth into Kathegat and the Belts where he took special pleasure in capturing or destroying German merchantmen. Great damage was done by the bold corsair, who is said even to have entered the enemy's ships in disguise, and to have bargained for the prize set on his own head. A number of leading German cities united, and sent a large fleet towards the coast of Norway to stop all Norwegian commerce. In a fight with the Germans, Alv at one time captured nine ships, if we may trust the old folk song, but he was unable to cope with such large forces. The blockade almost isolated Norway commercially, and the government was forced to sue for peace. In the treaty concluded at Kalmar in 1285, Norway agreed to pay an indemnity of 6,000 marks of silver, and the merchants of the German cities in question should have the right to buy unhindered whatever they pleased and export it from Norway. The Norwegian merchants should enjoy the same right in the German cities, Norway was yet able to compete with the Germans, but these foreign merchants had gained a stronger foothold, and their presence proved soon injurious to Norwegian trade. Even after peace had been concluded with the Germans, the hostility with Denmark continued, and extensive preparations were made to renew the war with that kingdom. Queen Ingeborg's favorite, Alv Erlingsson of Thornburg, Mindre Alv, a corruption of Milde Hrolf, who had plunged the country into war without authority, was not called to account for his strange conduct, but was instead created Jarl, and went to England as special envoy to King Edward I to secure his help in the war. Alexander III of Scotland died March 19, 1286, 
and Princess Margaret of Norway was to succeed to the throne, in conformity with the agreement of 1284. Edward I, who was anxious to bring about a marriage between Margaret and his son Edward, received Alvjarl very cordially, furnished him a war loan of 2,000 marks sterling, and granted permission to knights and others who were willing to go to Norway to help King Eric in the war with Denmark. Alv also tried, though without success, to raise military forces in Iceland. Soon after Alv Jarl's return to Norway, the Danish king, Eric Glipping, was assassinated by his rebellious nobles, and the war was thereby averted for a time. Queen Ingeborg did not live to carry out her plans. She died in March 1287. The impetuous Alv of Thornburg, who may have been her secret lover, and who owed his power and influence to her favor, immediately started a revolt in his customary desperate style. He burnt a part of the city of Oslo, but King Eric, aided by his brother Duke Hawken, quickly quelled the uprising and banished the violent Jarl. Hitherto, Queen Ingeborg and her favorites had shaped, to a large extent, the policy of the government, especially as to its relations with foreign powers, though the king had been of age for some time. But the influence by which he had been dominated ceased at the queen's death, and he could now take the reins into his own hands. The hostile attitude towards Denmark was nevertheless continued also by King Eric, and war broke out in 1289, but the only result of two successive campaigns was a further increase of the growing financial embarrassment of the government. In the second campaign, 1290, the banished Alv Erlingsson of Thornburg again found opportunity to renew his piratic raids, but he was captured by the Danes and put to death. King Eric's attention was more and more absorbed by the question of his daughter Margaret's succession to the throne of Scotland, and the operations against Denmark were for a time discontinued. Edward I of England was making strenuous efforts to bring about a marriage between his son Edward and Margaret, as he hoped thereby to unite the crowns of Scotland and England. This may have been the reason why the Scotch magnates were no longer willing to abide by their former agreement to defend Margaret's title. Eric sent an embassy to Edward I to solicit his aid in securing her recognition, and the king showed his goodwill by summoning a council at Salisbury, where the three Norwegian envoys met four Scotch and four English representatives to consider the matter. The Scotch representatives, the bishops of St. Andrews and Glasgow, Sir Robert Bruce the Elder, and Sir John Comyn, agreed to acknowledge Margaret as Queen of Scotland, if she came to their country without having contracted any obligation as to marriage, a condition to which the Norwegian envoys agreed. In September or October 1290, the little six-year-old princess, also called the Maid of Norway, was sent to Scotland, but she fell sick on the stormy voyage across the sea, and died shortly after reaching the Orkneys. Edward I now began to act the part of overlord of Scotland. He persuaded the Scotch pretenders, Robert Bruce the Elder, John Balliol, John Comyn, and others, to acknowledge him as the paramount lord of the kingdom, and to submit their claims to his decision. King Eric also sent ambassadors to urge his claim to the vacant throne as Margaret's heir, but it soon became clear that the only candidates who would be seriously considered were Robert Bruce and John Balliol. Edward I decided in favor of the latter, who received the crown of Scotland as his vassal. The cordial relations between Norway and England ceased from that moment, and Eric pursued a policy which brought him into ever closer relations with King Edward's enemies. In 1293 he married Isabella Bruce. 
granddaughter of Robert Bruce the Elder and sister of the later King Robert Bruce of Scotland. She bore him a daughter, Ingebjorg, but no son. It seems to have been Eric's intention to strengthen again the bonds between Norway and Scotland by this marriage, but all closer relations between the two kingdoms now rapidly ceased. Among the common people of Scotland, the tradition nevertheless continued to live that since the time of the Maid of Norway, the Norwegians claimed Scotland, and would someday return with an armed force and endeavor to take possession of the country. The Scotch poet Thomas of Erkeldun, Thomas Reimer, wrote a popular ditty about the Black Fleet of Norway which would enter the Firth of Forth. Not till it had left again could they build castles which would last. It will be seen upon a day between the Basin Bay, Cregen and Fidderay, the Black Fleet of Norway. Quan the Black Fleet is come and gan, then may they big their burg of lime and stain. Quilk they bigot of straw and hay, that will stand till doomsday. The war with Denmark was renewed in 1293, and after some indecisive campaigns during the following two years, a truce was arranged at Hegnesgavel, according to which King Eric and his brother Duke Hawken should have free use of the Danish estates belonging to their mother, Queen Ingebjörg, and merchants should be allowed to carry on trade unmolested between the two kingdoms. The truce expired in 1298, but it was renewed, and King Eric did not continue his attacks on Denmark. It is impossible to discover any statesmanlike policy in this protracted quarrel with Denmark, as the advantages which could have been gained even under the most favorable circumstances would scarcely have compensated for the heavy war expenses and the losses incurred by the interruption of commerce. The indemnity to be paid the German merchants for the damages done by Alf Erlingsson of Thornburg, and the outlay incident to the war brought King Eric into most serious financial difficulties. He was unable to pay the indemnity when it fell due, and the Germans used the opportunity to obtain new privileges in Norway. These were secured to them by a charter of 1294. In 1295, while Edward I of England was at war with France, King Eric sent Audun Hugleikson Hestikorn as plenipotentiary to France for the purpose, as it seems, of obtaining a loan. Audun had risen to great power after King Ingebjörg's death. He was the king's favorite, as Alf of Thornburg had been the queen's. He had received the title of Jarl, and held the important office of Fehirder, or royal treasurer. There can be no doubt that this powerful and unscrupulous baron exercised great influence over the manageable King Eric, who had learned only too well to submit to those who possessed a will stronger than his own. Audun concluded with France a most remarkable treaty. In consideration of a yearly subsidy of 30,000 pounds, he engaged for the Kingdom of Norway to furnish for the war with England 200 galleys and 100 large ships, with arms and provisions for four months of the year, together with 50,000 warriors. He well knew that this was far in excess of Norway's entire military force at this time, and that he contracted for his country obligations which it could not fulfill. But he accomplished his purpose of obtaining money, as the sum of 6,000 marks sterling was paid to him immediately. The second part of his mission was to obtain for Duke Hawken the hand of Countess Isabella of Jogni. This request was also granted, but the marriage was never solemnized. Audun returned to Norway about Christmas time, and the king ratified the treaty in March 1296. If he knew the character of the document when he signed it, and if he acted of his own free will, which is very doubtful, it shows what kind of influence Audun exercised over him. In 1297 to 1298, 
Eric was able to pay the indemnity due the German cities, and it must be inferred that he used the money obtained from France to liquidate this debt. Fortunately, the war between France and England stopped, and Norway was never called upon to meet the obligations created by Audun's perfidious bargain. Audun's later career is wrapped in mystery. In 1299 he was imprisoned. Three years later, in the reign of Haakon Magnusson, he was condemned to death and executed, and all his possessions were confiscated. This extreme penalty could be inflicted only for the greatest crime, and although nothing is known as to the nature of his offense, it has been thought that he was convicted of high treason. About 1287, Duke Haakon built the castle of Akershus at Oslo. The exact time of its erection cannot be determined, but it is known to have existed at 1300. The building of this castle seems to have been a part of a general plan to enlarge and beautify the city of Oslo. The strategic importance of this town had been repeatedly demonstrated. Its beautiful location, its fine harbor, and its proximity to Denmark, Sweden, and the Baltic Sea would also ensure its growth as a commercial center. It shows considerable foresight on the part of the young duke when he selected this town for his future capital. King Eric Magnusson died in Bergen on the 13th of June, 1299, 31 years of age. He had always been sickly, and through a fall from his horse, he received in his boyhood severe injuries which further impaired his delicate system. Both physically and intellectually, he seems to have been quite insignificant, and though he bore the title of king during the long period of 26 years, the helm of state had been controlled by other hands throughout the greater part of his reign. His queen, Isabella Bruce, who at the time of his death was a young woman of twenty, spent her long widowhood quietly at Bergen, where she died about sixty years later. End of chapter 73